Shot Reverse Shot. I'm Matt Risby. Good evening. And joining me, as usual, via the miracle of satellite technology, is the beast from 20,000 Fathoms. It's Ed Davis. How the devil are you, sir? Good, yeah. Just adjusting to all of this uh, pressure from being so far underwater. Yeah, yeah. Pressure being the optimal word. We are kind of do an artist profile this week, so we don't kind of do stuff that's in the news. But uh, the one thing that is worth mentioning is that you and I did a bit of moonlighting this week. We appeared as guests on another podcast, didn't we? Yeah, mi- mixed it up by adding a third voice into the mix for the first time in a while. <laughs> yep. So yeah, we were on War Machine versus Warhorse, which is a uh, thoroughly excellent podcast from some American folks. And they had us on talking about traffic and the counsellor which if you've seen those two films, you'll guess were super fun to talk about. And we had fun doing so, didn't we? Yeah, the the episode turned out very well. And eagle-eared listeners will be able to hear a lot of context clues uh, hinting at how long ago we actually recorded that episode. Yes, absolutely. Because, yeah, we were, they were kind of chaining a load. They were kind of stocking up, weren't they, to, to kind of smatter them through the year. Because they, they, they talk about a new film. Uh, and then talk about two old films based on a similar theme, and they're talking about Sicario, which is out kind of now. Uh, and we got to watch Traffic, which was a joy, and we got to watch The Counselor, which was fucking terrible. Yeah, not not to spoil the episode, but uh, The Counselor is not the modern masterpiece that some critics say that it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it does offer you, if like I, I sometimes say, the the, the thing to take away from even the worst film is that if it shows you something you never thought you'd ever see then it's worth it. And uh, I honestly never thought I'd see Cameron Diaz fuck a car. Mm. So and how's that going for it? Yeah. And you're not being kind of figurative there. The, <laughs> this actually happens. And I'll I'll never look at a tropical fish tank the same way. <laughs> um, we'll put a link to it in the show notes so you guys can kind of check it out. But yeah, that nonsense aside, we're here to talk about Betty Davis, who is kind of fascinating and kind of revered figure as part of our artist profile, we'll kind of jump straight into it and kind of talk about her breakthrough film. What was that, Ed? Her breakthrough was an adaptation of the W. Somerset Morn novel of Human Bondage. You won't have none of me, but you'll sit here all night looking at your naked female. Mildred! You cared! You dirty swine! I never cared for you, not once. I was always making a fool of you. You bored me stiff. I hated you. It made me sick when I had to let you kiss me. I only did it because you begged me. You hounded me. You drove me crazy. And after you kissed me, I always used to wipe my mouth. Wipe my mouth. But I made up for it. For every kiss I had a laugh. <laughs> we laughed at you. Miller and me and Griffiths and me. We laughed at you because you were such a mug, a mug, a mug. Do you know what you are? You give me leg monster. You're a cripple, a cripple, a cripple. I watched this earlier today. It's available kind of on various streaming services, but it appears that no actual kind of decent quality print exists. And the version I watched on Amazon Prime uh, appeared to be kind of shot with a 8mm camera on old film stock, which was filming the reflection of the VHS playing in a puddle. Yeah, or being projected onto the side of some tinfoil. Yeah, it's pretty kind of horrible, but we can kind of see through it. 
what struck me about this film was well, firstly the the fact that Betty Davis is a is a kind of icon of the stage and screen, and uh, rightly respected as an amazing actor, but she does an appalling <laughs> Cockney accent in this film. Yeah, it's it's pretty rough going as far as the accent goes, and she does that thing that you you often see with uh, actors who have maybe struggled with the accent, uh, including uh, Cameron Diaz, weirdly enough, in The Counselor, where she starts off as Bob Aden and then isn't at a certain point. Uh, she kind of starts off trying to be really cockney and as the film progresses just kind of gets less and less and just sounds like Betty Davis mm. which is probably um, the smart choice but the the thing to note about uh, of human bondage and uh, Betty Davis's performance in this film in particular is whilst it's a breakthrough it did kind of set the tone for her career and that she wasn't afraid to play characters who were unsympathetic uh, or just downright horrible yeah, she is a pretty pretty terrible character in it. Not that, you know, she's uh, plays this cafe waitress who the main character, played by uh, Leslie Howard, poor, poor Leslie Howard, who uh, was famously killed during World War II when his uh, plane was shot down by the Luftwaffe. He is kind of this guy who's got clubfoot and is a kind of an, a, guy, a man who has aspirations of being an artist that don't pan out, so he decides to become a doctor. And he falls in love with this uh, waitress who doesn't return his affection. And then uh, when he tries to forget her, she keeps coming back into his life and demanding things from him, you know, getting him to raise her child from another man and kind of toying with his affections, uh, stealing all of his money and just kind of uh, ruining his life on multiple occasions. Mm. Yeah. And it in regards to uh, Betty Davis not being afraid to play kind of unsympathetic or kind of uh, unlikable characters, why do you think that is? Do you think it's something about her, the fact that it mirrors what is kind of quite closely her personality? She was very abrasive uh, off screen, wasn't she? I, I definitely feel like that was a part of it because if you read any interviews of her or watch any interviews of her, that comes across. She was someone who was uh, quite prickly. Mm-hmm. I think could be a, a a polite term to refer to her, and but I also think that it was in some sense kind of a survival technique for her in Hollywood because she was not kind of a classically beautiful actress in the way that a lot of the silent film stars were of the time, the people who were struggling to make transitions into sound. So she kind of staked out a claim, a, a kind of area for herself playing roles that those sort of people would not be willing to play because they would want it to be kind of sanded down and prettied up. So instead she's willing to go full tilt into kind of just really kind of horrible and difficult to watch territory. Mm. Like you say, she wasn't kind of what you'd describe as classically beautiful in the kind of Hollywood sense, mainly due to the fact that she had an incredibly interesting face. And as Kim Carnes once said, Betty Davis eyes. Yeah, she was someone who was kind of... She, she has this sort of face where it's, it's pretty much impossible to look away from her when she's on screen, which I think is, is one of the things that made her such a magnetic presence, and she could really kind of play to that. She has uh, just kind of the best kind of resting bitch face, as the kids say it, in the history of cinema. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. In the history of cinema, Betty Davis was a very kind of symbolic and kind of a trailblazer in, in, in a lot of ways. She was the first kind of female president of the Academy 
which is a, a massive deal. Uh, she was the first actor to get 10 Oscar nominations. Um, if you believe the uh, apocryphal story, she named Oscar, Oscar, uh, after uh, kind of famously saying that the, the statuette kind of like resembled one of her boyfriends, I think. Uh, whether you believe that's true or not, it's kind of funny that she was kind of there at the kind of conception of that idea. And yeah, she just wasn't afraid to stick it to the man, was she? No, including suing Warner Brothers because yeah. she, uh, not long after kind of breaking through with of human bondage, uh, she she had a few roles in a row that were, were good, but she entered a stage in her career where she just felt like she was getting just a ton of terrible roles and she thought that Warner Brothers, because she had this reputation for being kind of difficult and a perfectionist and abrasive, was trying to destroy her career by just giving her shitty parts, which may sound slightly paranoid, but is kind of an established practice that studios would do. Mm. This is in the days that if kind of any of our listeners kind of aren't uh, quite so clued up. That like when the the studios owned everything, they owned the the means of distribution, they owned the cinemas, they owned the distributors, they owned uh, the production wing. But when you say they owned the production wing, they owned the writers, the directors, and they they owned the stars. Occasionally, they'd loan them out to other studios, but in essence, you were in a contract and you couldn't break it. Yeah, and in her case, what she did was to try and uh, break out of that cycle. She left America and shot a film in Europe and mm-hmm. uh, when she came back she was uh, sued by Warner Brothers and she took them to court. You know, she went to court with them essentially to try and break the system, the contractor system because it was horribly unfair to actors and she lost that lawsuit but it was a you know a hell of a thing for someone to do in the 1930s uh, and, and it was kind of a precedent for Olivia de Havilland's lawsuit, which uh, she had in 1943 and actually won and kind of was one of the first big blows to the the control of the studio system. Mm. So, yeah, Bay Davis was a, a kind of very important player. And she was kind of, I think she was in those polls of like the greatest movie stars of all time. She's always up there. Those are some of the reasons why. Let's kind of illuminate the, the dark side for her moment and talk about what we consider or what you consider, or Rotten Tomatoes is our general guide for this, our weather vane, decides is what's her worst film? It is the Larry Cohen film from 1989, known, because that's what it's called, as Wicked Stepmother. When Jenny and Steve came home from vacation... Sam, we're home! They weren't ready for Dad's surprise. I got married! <laughs> With who? They got a new stepmother. Call me mom. How could you have brought that woman into our house? We do have great sex. I realize I am in a quiet taste. I mean, Larry Cohen is someone who has done some amazing films, but it wouldn't be unkind of me to say that he has done some incredibly tawdry shit. Yeah, I mean, he, as a director, he directed things like Maniac Cop. Which yeah, which is, has got the best tagline of all time, which is uh, you have the right to remain silent forever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. A, an incredible work of exploitation cinema, <laughs> soon to be remade. Uh, he also was a writer, in because he hasn't directed a film in a long time, but in the early 2000s he seemed to develop something of an obsession with cellular technology because he wrote both the movie Cellular with Jason Statham and Phone Booth. 
Right, okay. He so, liked, and then he before that he did a, a film which was just about tin cans and attached to, with a, <laughs> like a length of string. But he did write and direct Cue the Wing Serpent, uh, which yeah. is a great exploitation film from back in the day. And uh, The Stuff, that was him, wasn't it? And The Ambulance. Uh, yeah. All those kind of films are, are kind of tidy little uh, numbers. But yeah, uh, what did he do to Betty Davis? Well, he cast her and, and wrote the part for her in this, this film called Wicked Stepmother, which is a comedy... Uh, question mark about a woman who is a kind of a witch who moves in with kind of old withers and in order to steal their money and to basically mess with her, their families to give you a sense of the tone of the film it starts with a detective coming into a seemingly abandoned house with uh, the former maid of the uh, family and they're trying to find out what happened to this family because they've completely disappeared and there's no trace of them and there's no trace of the old woman who had kind of moved in with them and, uh, you know, the place is completely empty. And then suddenly they start to hear this kind of mumbling and they find a shoebox within which are the family having been shrunk down to the sh- size of uh, sort of thimbles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the rest of the film, whenever they appear, they talk in high voices because they've been shrunk. And it's kind of a very goofy film that features things like a group of old women beating up cops and Betty Davis giving what could kind of charity be described as a disinterested performance as the uh, as the titular witch right okay i mean this all sounds great but it's it's interesting to note that like a lot of uh, actors who had kind of success early on then kind of went into the kind of wilderness years we've talked a lot about how female actors have got shorter careers typically in hollywood than their male counterparts because the world's a very shallow place and it's terrible but betty davis she did continue working, but she didn't really have that kind of late career renaissance. She didn't have that one last great part, did she? It kind of just eased down very slowly. Yeah, her the last 20 or 30 years of her career really is uh, kind of falls into this pattern where every few years she would have usually a supporting role in uh, a feature film, but in between then she would be doing kind of guest spots on TV shows or... Uh, starring in TV movies, and that was kind of where her bread and butter came from. And the rest of the time, she would be trying to find some sort of, uh, so like a role that really kind of suited her. And uh, from what I understand, she initially felt that Wicked Stepmother could be that because it was something she hadn't really done for a while. Was this kind of dark comedy with uh, special effects and things like that? It was something that she hadn't really tried. But when she got there she found that larry cohen was not kind of in in her words was not kind of willing to listen to her ideas about the performance and seemed to be really disinterested she didn't get on with his style of directing to the extent that after seven days of filming or maybe even just five days of filming she uh left the set and never came back Hmm. yeah it's 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 kind of comforting to know that she was difficult to the last (laughs) Yeah, and it, it was her last film because she died about eight months after the film came out and she she didn't get... Uh, there's there's a great interview w- with her talking to Leonard Moulton on uh, Entertainment Tonight where she talks about this. I knew audiences when they saw this with me in it. If they had seen me all the whole film with me in it, they would really have thought I had lost my mind. And it is very possible I might have... Any ideas I had about performance? Well, he just wasn't interested in that at all. So that whole first week I was playing scenes away 
Well, I wasn't comfortable, and I was bad. I knew I couldn't go back. I knew I could not finish it. I knew I had to have some say about my performance, and I know with no confidence could I go on. And, and Leonard Moulton kind of ends the piece where he says, you know, she's if anyone's you know got a great script, uh, you know, Betty Davis is there, and uh, I hope that she gets that last role. And like it's said in a very upbeat way, just kind of like you know, hey, this is there's this Hollywood legend who really just wants to work, but obviously watching it now, you just think, yeah, that that comes across as bitterly ironic now, Leonard. Yeah. Um, speaking of kind of Hollywood legend wanting to work, uh, Betty Davis famously took out an advert, didn't she? I think it was in like Variety or The Hollywood Reporter or something, where having not had a kind of decent part in a while, she kind of took out a full-page ad saying kind of, you know, classically trained act- actress, kind of then kind of listed a physical description and said, you know, available to work, has done Broadway, mm. um, which was kind of just the kind of uh, rakish thing that she might do also is a kind of scathing indictment of, of uh, Hollywood's attitude towards ageing women, female actresses. He absolutely is. And it also it also is kind of illustrative of her career in that she was someone who whose career wasn't like a Julia Roberts where big star for, for a fairly long time and then kind of a very slow kind of easing into a different level of, of fame. You know, it was very much a case of spikes. Mm. She, she first went to Hollywood and struggled for... Three or three or four years, which doesn't sound like that long, but when you're like a struggling actress, it's it seem must seem pretty long to mm. be just moving to LA and seemingly not having any chance of actually making it. You know, she struggled and then she became big star for a while, and then uh, work fe- fell off, and then in the forties, massive star again, and then work fell off. And you know that was kind of the pattern over and over throughout her career. And you kind of feel like with Wicked Stepmother, had. She chosen a different project, uh, you know. If she'd chosen something that could really play to her, her strengths, she probably could have had, you know. Obviously, the the uh, nature of the fact that she had cancer probably meant that she wouldn't have been able to get many more roles in. But you know, she could have at least had kind of one final kind of bout of glory. Mm. The kind of uh, the on golden pond moment, as it were. Yeah. 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 A shame. A shame. So that's her worst film, and she had a, a long career and did a, a lot of different things. But yeah, her kind of most unusual film could be seen as being one of her most iconic, because that would be whatever happened to Baby Jane. Baby Jane Hudson made the money that paid for this house. That's who! You don't know what you're saying. Blanche, you aren't ever going to sell this house. And you aren't ever gonna leave it either interesting because it's kind of tonally quite detached from what she'd done before but also it really brought her together with Joan Crawford who um, it could be politely said that she fucking hated yeah and actually to go back to Wicked Stepmother for a second there is kind of an in-joke where at one point the kind of wife of the family she moves in with is looking at a picture of kind of her dead mother who in the world of the film would have been married to Seymour Cassell, who plays the, the kind of the grandfather. Uh, and it is of course a picture of Joan Crawford. <laughs> so mm. I don't know if that was originally in the script or if that was something that was added after they were forced to make the film about their star. But uh, that was something that as soon as I saw it, I got, it made me laugh. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that like, cause obviously they had a very, very long rivalry I mean, I mean, even rivalry is probably underselling it. Yeah, they basically just ragged on each other for years, and then whatever happened to Baby Jane was not a kind of 
reconciliation. It was a kind of really kind of spiky, nasty <laughs> amalgamation of all that kind of hate over the years building up into a kind of very, very intense drama. Yeah, it's the sort of thing when you watch it, it's very hard to say what is the film and what is just the <laughs> fact that these two actors really legitimately hate each other. Because the, the story is that it's about two uh, sisters who kind of live in this ramshackle old house together and they've lived there for years. One of whom, uh, one of them played by Joan Crawford, is this kind of child star who was a huge star when she was younger and was in a accident to, uh, which at the start of the film is kind of shrouded in mystery. And she's been kind of dependent on her uh, less successful sister for a very long time, kind of looking after, played by Betty Davis. And the whole film is essentially just kind of them playing psychological games with each other as kind of observers kind of wandering in out of the film and see this weird, hermetically sealed uh, uh, world of kind of real bitter hatred that has built up between the two characters. Mm. And hatred is, I mean, we really aren't underselling the fact they did hate each other. And I, I found a wonderful blog today, which is just a collection of Betty Davis's bitchiest insults and there's a good portion of them who are, that are solely reserved for Miss Crawford who professionally was kind of competition for a long while like famously they kind of went for the same roles or they turned down roles that kind of uh, the other one took famously Betty Davis turned down Mildred Pierce in the film Mildred Pierce and during Crawford went on to kind of make that her defining role uh, I'm sure Betty, Betty Davis wasn't that bothered about it but uh yeah, it's that kind of thing where they were both sparring for things at the same time. Uh, one of my favourite uh, quotes that Betty Davis said about Joan Crawford was, she has slept with every male star at MGM except Lassie, which uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is great. I mean, I don't know how true that is. I don't want to cast any aspersions on Miss Crawford. That's another episode entirely. But those were the kind of barbs that would be kind of exchanged between them. And then when Joan Crawford died in kind of expecting maybe some contrition from Betty Davis, what she actually said was, you should never say bad things about the dead. You should only say good. Joan Crawford is dead. Good. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what I definitely recommend checking out. There's there's loads of tumblers dedicated to uh, Betty Davis's bitchiness. And yeah, I'd recommend them all. But they're all yeah. great. That, that certainly seems to play into, because I think one of the things that's important to say about Betty Davis is that she is something of a camp icon mm. and i think that a large part of that comes from the fact that she was one of the most kind of acid-tongued and uh, kind of forcefully and brutally honest actors actresses going if you look up pretty much any interview of her she will be insulting people she's worked with or people in the industry and a lot of, there is a, a huge amount of enjoyment to be gained from that and even though Whatever Happened to Baby Jane is, is kind of a really sad film in a lot of ways because these two characters are kind of trapped together. It also has a similar kind of appeal to it of something like Grey Gardens, which mm. has that same sort of people of watching these two characters who are, to an extent, outrageous being trapped in the same room. Um, I was also just looking at the details of a story from Whatever Happened to Baby Jane that I'd read before and is probably my favourite Betty Davis, uh, Joan Crawford thing which is that uh, Joan Crawford was married to the chairman of Pepsi and so to annoy her Betty Davis insisted on there being a Coca-Cola machine on the set <laughs> which is so brilliantly petty <laughs> yeah 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 that is pretty fucking awesome uh, that is like 
when you've got rich people engaged in like kind of petty disputes, that's the kind of thing that they can pull off, which is always good. And Betty Davis said that the best time she had with Joan Crawford was when she got to the scene where she got to push her down the stairs. Yeah, um, I can imagine. <laughs> I can imagine uh, that would have been hugely cathartic, but not in the sense that it would actually resolve anything. Just in the sense it's something she probably really wanted to do for about 20 or 30 years. Do you know what weirdly sprung to mind when watching Whatever Happened to Baby Jane was the episode of Louie where Dane Cook is in it. Yes. And you you get that same feeling that you kind of said earlier when you're like, what is the film and what is real? Because for those of you who don't know, Dane Cook was you know, huge kind of megastar comedian playing arenas and stuff. And someone pointed out that he had kind of perhaps stolen some of Louis C.K.'s jokes. And Louis C.K.'s show Louis, obviously very autobiographical and has kind of elements of his own life. And there's an episode where he has to go and see Dane Cook because Dane Cook shares an agent with Lady Gaga and Louis wants tickets to go and see Lady Gaga for his kids. Is that right? Uh, yeah, that's right. And uh, there's a scene where they just sit down and they just talk and they openly talk about the joke theft. And there's bits of it that I'm thinking, well, is this scripted? Did he run this by Dane Cook? Why is Dane Cook on this? And that's what kind of reminded me of whatever happened to Baby Jane. Because you're like, well, hang on, these guys obviously hate each other. What were they hoping to achieve by being in the film together, obviously playing such antagonists, were they attempting to in some way kind of reconcile or was it just canny casting by whoever put the film together to try and get two people who obviously hate each other to be in that kind of role to kind of get people to see it? I mean, what kind of spurred them to make it? It's interesting when you look at like the production history of the film, but other actors who were considered for it. So there are people like Ingrid Bergman, Susan Hayward, Rita Hayworth, Catherine Hepburn... There's just lots of people who were kind of looked at for various roles in it. And it's kind of that that to me strikes me as weird, because I think, why would you make the film unless it starred these two actors? For me, like the thing that it's not a gimmick, but like the selling point of it is you get to see these people who have genuine animosity to each other kind of spar on screen. The idea that it was just a role that anyone could have been given, it kind of almost seems anathema to the nature of the story. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's an odd one. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in that set. Although the the producers said that they acted like perfect professionals. Well, apart from the coke thing, obviously. Yeah, I think there was there were there were little moments where they were clearly sniping at each other and taking the opportunity to uh, just kind of mess with each other, but not uh, to the extent that they you know delayed shooting of the film or made it a disaster because you know it was a hugely successful film when it came out. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Well, people obviously wanted to see them face off, I guess. Yeah, it's much like Alien versus Predator. Yes, but with wheelchairs and uh, heavy makeup. Yeah, that's probably the modern day equivalent. <laughs> well, it is weird that like we talk about Betty Davis, and there's that whole kind of idea that they don't make them like that anymore in terms of films. But like, they don't seem to make movie stars like Betty Davis anymore either. No, I think that the the PR industry has reached a a level of kind of control that they are very very good at kind of sanding people down and coaching them to the extent that they don't basically don't speak their minds as much as they perhaps would like to Mm. it's interesting to kind of think that i forget her name is it cara devane uh she's in the paper towns adaptation uh yeah cara delevane i think delevane when she kind of got absolutely pilloried for being on a press junket and someone said 
did you read the book beforehand? And she kind of, having been sat in a room all day answering the same question, said, no, I haven't read the book and I didn't read the script either. I just winged it every day. And I kind of deep <laughs> what I thought was hilarious. Yeah. Everyone was like, what a spoiled bitch. And it was kind of absurd to kind of, uh, for that to happen. And you think that like, when you're basically saying, like Betty Davis did, that she was pleased that her great co-star and rival had died. <laughs> it seems, yeah, kind of pretty lame by comparison. You also kind of got that when uh, Serena Williams recently lost the US Open and she had that press conference afterwards and they said, you know, how do you feel? And she just basically said, I really don't want to be here. Mm. And everyone, there was like a big fuss about it. It's like, well, yeah, like I think if you just lost you know, the match that was going to kind of immortalise you as someone who had won all of the Opens in a single calendar year. You wouldn't be in the best frame of mind to sit there and have people ask you kind of asinine questions. Mm. Yeah. And it, I, I think, like, yeah, today people are, are kind of so far obsessed with image, whereas in those days, that was the image. The image, you know, you could be the prickly one, you could be the kind of all-American hero, and there just doesn't seem to be that kind of... those archetypes anymore. It seems odd. It does make me wonder if the kind of rise of authentic politicians in the US and uh, in the UK in recent months, you know, Jeremy Corbyn being elected leader of the Labour Party and Bernie Sanders kind of rising to a a position of uh, previously unthought of prominence in the US uh, kind of race for the presidency might be a, a reaction to that as people have kind of become so inoculated to the, the kind of the press control and things like that, that they suddenly think, hey, this person, you know, doesn't seem to have uh, spent 12 hours talking to PR men before answering a single question. Mm. Yeah, people get kind of wise to the, the career politician and the career kind of movie star, I guess, don't they? I mean, yeah. like, if you think about movie stars now, and when I say I don't mean actors, I mean actual movie stars, there are very few kind of knocking around. I mean, you'd say someone like Tom Cruise is a movie star in a kind of old-fashioned sense, but he's pretty kind of boring. Um, and very controlled. Exactly. And controlling. And so, but so then someone like George Clooney is a kind of movie star, but he is a movie star in the sense that he kind of is a is a, is a kind of a presence outside of being an actor, kind of has a lot of... Uh, irons in the fire and, and kind of controls what he does more than kind of most people but we, you don't really have big movie stars anymore no i mean the the only one i can think of of recent vintage would be someone like uh, jennifer lawrence who does come across an interview thing as you know really genuine and someone who uh, isn't kind of putting up a front she's perfectly happy to be kind of like silly and daft and messy and whatever but it's still but that that is still kind of the most kind of uh, palatable version of of someone like the, a Betty Davis, who was authentic in that she genuinely disliked a lot of people and was very very happy to talk about it at length. Mm. Cool. We're going to talk about Betty Davis's most successful film now, which is also the film that defines her career. And the film is that good; it would probably define anyone's career. We're talking about the absolute masterpiece, All About Eve. I distinctly remember Addison crossing you off my guest list. What are you doing here? Dear Margot, you were an unforgettable Peter Pan. You must pray it again soon. Uh, you remember Miss Caswell? Don't I you? do not. How do you do? We've never met. Maybe that's why. Miss Caswell is an actress, a graduate of the Copacabana School of Dramatic Art. Ah, Eve. 
Good evening, Mr. DeWitt. I had no idea you two knew each other. This must be, at long last, our formal introduction. Until now, we've only met in passing. That's how you met me, in passing. Not really overselling it there, am I? It really is genuinely a masterpiece. Probably one of the greatest scripts ever written. Yeah, one of the best scripts ever written. A kind of remarkable cast delivering it with, with gusto. A film so good that, for a time, it sent me on a bit of a Joseph L. Mankiewicz uh, kick where I thought this guy made such a great film he must have made lots of other ones and uh, not so much uh, he, he made a lot of fun films but he made a lot of films like you know Sleuth which were you know perfectly fun but not kind of iconic in the way that All About Eve is to the extent that the Eve Harrington character is like an archetype now mm. like if you wanted to describe a particular character type and you just said oh they're like an Eve Harrington it's like oh yeah yeah know exactly what that means yeah and the Eve Harrington type and the, that kind of all about Eve idea is perfectly present in the film Showgirls, if you've seen it, which is perhaps takes the all about Eve thing to the next level. Yeah, it certainly takes advantage of jacuzzi technology in a way that wasn't available in 1950. Yeah, absolutely. So in All About Eve, it is a kind of scabrous look at kind of fame and acting and being kind of fairly power hungry and kind of awful. But it's a really kind of formally interesting film. It kind of starts with uh, this kind of interesting voiceover and kind of flashback structure. And it's kind of one of those films that when you find out it won kind of a whole bunch of Oscars, you think, well, yeah, of course it did, because it's all about even. It's that good. Yeah, and the, the structure is interesting in that it pretty much copies the structure of Citizen Kane in that regard, which was written by Herman J. Mankiewicz, and it's uh, Joseph Mankiewicz's brother. Oh, Mr. and Mrs. Mankiewicz must be very proud of their sons. Yeah, they they, they did good work. Um, mm. But yeah, like it's a, like you say, it's, it's a very kind of pointed satire of of the acting community. It's set on uh, on Broadway as opposed to Hollywood, but it has a lot of things to say about the way that actresses in all of these kind of subcultures are are, are treated. And like uh, whatever happened to Baby Jane, there is kind of a metatextual undercurrent to it in the fact that. At that point in her career, Betty Davis would have been kind of in her 40s. She had kind of gone through the period of being a huge box office star and kind of also gone through periods of being box office poison. And, you know, there was she would have been reaching that age where a lot of younger actors, actresses coming up would have got the parts that she would have got only a few years earlier. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Talking about other actresses and and kind of encapsulating her, her kind of appeal in the film all about Eve. You mentioned her being a kind of a camp icon. To what extent is Betty Davis a feminist icon? Well, she's definitely someone who was in a very, you know, a male-dominated industry, as as it is now, and, you know, as it was then. She was someone who, through that the, the lawsuit that we previously mentioned, you know, fighting for the desire to have good scripts, you know, mm. to have work that she felt she could do well and her constant battles on pretty much every film that she made to you know make sure that the work was being good even if that meant completely walking away from it i think that that the the desire not to concede to the people around her or to just say yeah fine i'll do it your way that to basically to have spent her entire life right up until the last months of her life fighting for the work that she wanted to do i think is kind of a huge part of the idea that she is a a feminist icon Mm. Kind of depressing, though, isn't it? That, like, you know, the things that she was fighting for haven't really kind of been arrested, have they? Those, those, 
that kind of inequality and lack of good roles for women is not really something that we're seeing like a, a kind of a lot of these days yeah and like the, the the maybe the most positive message to draw from it is that it's possible to be labeled difficult and still have a career because that's kind of the thing that is used against uh women and also kind of um, actors of color basically anyone who isn't kind of a white man will get uh, labeled as difficult as kind of coded language for saying we're just not going to have anything to do with you in the future mm. uh, and she she managed to kind of fight through that and make a career out of it which is very very rare but yeah. again it involved having to fight pretty much seemingly every single day of her career for over half a century yeah and she like like say i'm going to go back to uh, the blog of uh, bitchiest things that she ever said she wasn't afraid to kind of bite the hand that feeds especially not when talking about being kind of in a man's world as it were and one of my favorite quotes of hers is the male ego with few exceptions is elephantine to start with Uh, (laughs) which is always a good one and uh, she also said i am a woman meant for a man but i never found a man who could compete um which is fairly kind of edgy to be being said in the 30s and 40s yeah yeah I, i would say so kind of pre you know 1960s i would imagine it would have been pretty scandalous yeah and to talk about the the fact that a lot of these things basically haven't been you know fixed or they haven't improved kind of in the extent that really given the amount of time that has passed they should have there is kind of a sense that they you see with basically all kind of early feminist icons is that they they kind of fight for the rights that they themselves probably will not have the opportunity to enjoy or to kind of see the fruits of their labor and you kind of get the sense that the things she was doing in the 40s you know that maybe a few years later would not be seen as kind of too big of a deal she had to do them but at the risk of kind of destroying her career and in some cases if not destroying it certainly delaying it for several years in in a uh, at the time it's a shame she never lived to see showgirls is all i'm saying yeah, she was just six years out. Mm, what a crying shame. What a crying <laughs> shame. So what's Betty Davis's legacy? I think it's it's very multifaceted. I think it's certainly just as in terms of a, a performer, she was uh, someone who did just incredible work pretty, uh, across the board, even in, even in her films that weren't great. She was usually fantastic in them. Uh, she was someone who... Uh, I think demonstrated that it is possible for people to fight for their their work and their career in a way that uh, basically actors with except for people like you know someone like a, a Chaplin you know people who were kind of uh, multi hyphenates people who had a lot of power because they directed and wrote and everything she demonstrated I think she fought for power for actors and actresses in a way that people hadn't really done before and that had a kind of a, a seismic impact even if she kind of lost the battle quite a few times hmm. do you think that if this is a kind of i hope the answer doesn't depress me but i'm kind of pretty sure it will if betty davis was around today do you think she'd just be that character actor well like a like a margot martindale type yeah she wouldn't be a kind of a leading lady getting meaty things she'd just be kind of brought in to add some color <laughs> most likely yeah yeah, that is depressing, exactly. isn't it? She, yeah, she would have kind of. What, what kind of became her 
later career of being a supporting player in ensemble films and things like that, that probably would have been most of her career, except for, you know, maybe a a young writer-director who really liked her work with Catherine and Lead in the way that, say, uh, you know, Tarantino did with, with Jackie Brown or something. Mm. Yeah, it would be very much a case where the, she would be probably a, a character actor who would do lots of work in film and maybe, you know, get a lead on a TV show eventually. Mm. Bet Davis is Jackie Brown. That is, <laughs> I'd, I'd watch that. That would be pretty awesome. So that's kind of Betty Davis. I've kind of always enjoyed her work when I've seen it. She's gone, done way too many films for me to have kind of seen them all. But uh, a nice change of pace to talk about someone kind of old school and someone who's, you know, fun to talk about. Yeah, and, and someone whose career kind of encompasses pr- everything from the the early days of sound cinema because she first came to Hollywood in about 1931, I think, was her first film, all the way up to kind of the 80s and, and through everything uh, in between. Mm, yeah, yeah. But yeah, a true legend and a true icon, Bay Davis. That is it from us this week. And we'll be back next week with something else interesting, I'm sure. Until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.